Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. True Scary Story is a podcast about personal, terrifying stories dealing with the paranormal. True accounts from people who live through strange and supernatural experiences, told directly by them. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, and for years I have been listening to stories from people who have shared their most frightening true experiences with me. There was one story recently called There's Something in the Closet, where Juanita tells us about her experiences growing up in a house where she would see objects physically move on their own, but the rest of her family would act as if nothing was happening. It wasn't until years later that she found out what the source of it all was, which makes me wonder... If you were to witness a haunting, who would believe you? Come find True Scary Story by typing it into your app right now. I'll see you over there on True Scary Story. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about feline fiascos and damning diaries. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight 
to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Darcy Turnbow and Kitty Olson. Our voice talents drew blood, Melissa Exelberth, and Nick Goroff. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale of the evening is written by Darcy Turnbow and is performed by Drew Blood and Melissa Exelberth. In it, we'll meet a couple named Frank and Carol. Carol would do anything for her cats, despite Frank's feelings. Unfortunately, he will soon see just how much she's willing to sacrifice for her fur babies. Now, without further ado, I present to you the Cat Lady. Frank sat in his recliner trying to watch the game when a cat jumped in his lap. Get down, he yelled and threw the cat down. It shook its head and licked its fur where Frank had touched it. This was just one of at least a dozen or so that his wife had collected over the years. Frank hated them. Carol loved those kitties. Lost souls who had been abandoned or never had a home in the first place. They gave Carol a sense of purpose, a real reason to get up in the morning. If she didn't take care of them, then who would? These cats needed to be fed and loved. She really couldn't help it if cats came to her, and she definitely couldn't turn them away. When a little bag of bones ended up at her doorstep, she did her best to take care of them. She wanted all of her cats to be fat and happy. Besides, they were much better company, better than Frank was these days. While petting her new favorite cat, she thought about her first cat. Whiskers was gray with green eyes. She was a birthday present when she turned ten. Carol was an only child, so having a companion like Whiskers made her lonely life a little less lonely. Whenever Carol felt sad, she could talk to her cat. Somehow, it seemed like her kitty understood what she was saying. She was a good listener. Carol could hide out in her closet with Whiskers and ignore her parents arguing. Whiskers died when Carol was 22. Seeing her cat suffer at the end of her life was unbearable. She had never felt such deep sorrow. She didn't even know it was possible to feel so sad. That's a feeling she never wanted to have again. As soon as Carol and Frank got married, she begged her husband for a kitten. It had been less than a year since Whiskers' death, and she desperately wanted another cat. Frank had always been a dogman himself, but he wanted to keep his new wife happy. He figured a little cat would be a good way to keep Carol happy while he was away at work. A decision he would come to regret. Frank thought of cats as only having one job, live in the barn and keep the vermin at bay. His grandparents' farm had a couple of cats, but they were never allowed in the house. They weren't pets. They were more like tools for catching mice. But Carol had told him countless stories of her cat and all the time they had spent together. It sounded pretty nice, and he figured it couldn't hurt to have a pet, even if it was a cat. Frank worked at his father's insurance company all his life. He eventually took over when his dad retired. Frank was easygoing and friendly, a real family man. The only problem was that there was no family. 
Turns out they couldn't have children. Resentment and tension made their home uncomfortable for both of them. Frank would come home from work, they would have a quiet dinner, and then he would go to work on his projects in the garage. And that's how it went for years. It wasn't great, but sometimes in life that's what you get. Carol replaced missing children with cats, lots of them. She would take in unwanted kittens from friends and put out food for the strays that would come by. In the early days, spaying and neutering animals didn't happen all that much. Feral cats ran around everywhere in her small town looking for any food they could find. They found it at Carol's house. The wild cats would just grab a quick bite and then run away. Others were a little more tame and wanted some TLC to go with their kibble. Those cats were Carol's favorites. Getting a cat to trust you and into the house was her favorite thing. That's when you knew they really loved you. There were so many cats, she started to run out of names, and many cats looked alike, but she had her favorites. Linda was her very favorite. She had gone from wild and skittish to being the biggest baby of them all. Linda meowed and pawed at Carol to pick her up. Even though Carol was always busy doing something, she always had time for Linda. When Frank was home, it was miserable for everyone. Frank thought his wife had lost her mind. When he complained about them, she would cry and say they were her children. Frank felt terrible they didn't have any human children, so he would drop it and go to the garage to escape. Frank tried to keep busy with his projects and hobbies. He worked in the garage on his wood carvings or on the car. The garage was the one room the cats were not allowed into. His only place to escape the meows and cat litter not to mention all the bowls of cat food in the kitchen. Carol wanted to give them the good stuff, wet, stinky food, but Frank drew the line there. It cost too much for so many cats, he would say. Walking through the house to his chair, Frank would shoo the cats away. One or two would be using his chair to sleep in. As soon as he sat down, a small tabby named Cora jumped up onto his lap. Get the hell off me, he yelled. Frank hit the cat and she landed on the floor. Cora turned and hissed at Frank. Frank hissed back. Most of the cats knew that Frank hated them and stayed clear of them. Carol paid more attention to them than to him. He played second fiddle to a bunch of mangy animals. When Carol wasn't looking, he would kick any cat that was in his way. It made him feel a little better. He started thinking about killing the cats. At first, it was just a fantasy. Over time, he began to think more about how he would do it, how he would get away with it. Once, while she was gone to the store, Frank drowned two strays in the pond by putting them in a burlap sack and throwing them in. Just watching them struggle for life gave him satisfaction. Carol would wonder where they had gone and figured they had found somewhere else to get fed. Losing even a single cat was so sad for her. She would worry about them long after they were gone. Maybe they will come back. Surely they won't find a better home somewhere else. She would say. Frank just grinned to himself, pleased to know those scavengers would never return. Killing cats became a type of sport for Frank. He liked the thrill he got from making them disappear without getting caught. Carol didn't leave home very often, so he had to make quick work of it when he got the chance. It was convenient to blame coyotes for their disappearance. 
As Frank got older, the thrill of killing cats faded. Besides, new cats just replaced the dead ones as if they had never died in the first place. It felt impossible to win. Frank eventually retired after 30 years in the insurance business. In his retirement, he enjoyed fishing a little and going to garage sales with Carol. But he wanted to travel and see the world. He felt like it was time for them to go live a little. What do you say we go on a road trip and see some of the country? We've waited for so long now, we have all the time in the world, Frank said to Carol over dinner one night. We can't do that. Who will feed the cats? Maybe it's time to let them move on. Let someone else take care of them, Frank said. Carol scoffed. That's crazy. It's not just about feeding them. They need to be cared for. They'll be okay. You've done enough for them. It's time for us. Carol glared at Frank. She knew he couldn't wait to get rid of them. He never cared for them like she did. She felt closer to them than to her own family. Carol got up and started clearing the table. You just don't understand, she said, trying to hold back the tears. You're damn right I don't understand, Frank yelled as he followed her into the kitchen. Why are those cats so much more important than I am? You treat those stupid cats better than you treat me. He was more angry than she had ever seen him. Years of frustration was boiling over. Stop it, just stop it. She was crying and covering her ears, but he had had enough. Linda was on the floor ready for her dinner, circling Carol's legs. Carol tried to get out of the kitchen and away from Frank. As Frank went to grab her, he tripped on Linda and fell down. Frank screamed out in pain as he hit his head on the oak hutch. He lay there writhing in pain, bleeding all over the floor when Linda came over to check on him, attracted by the smell of fresh blood. Frank grabbed Linda in a fit of rage and snapped her neck. The cat was dead in an instant. Frank had never felt so good and yet so bad at the same time. Carol watched in horror as Linda fell to the floor limp as a rag doll. Frank rolled around on the floor laughing and holding his injured head. Carol picked up Linda and held her dead body. Crying hysterically, she hugged the large mass of fur. The cat's bowels let loose and spilled all over Carol's apron and onto the floor. Carol rocked back and forth, crying and screaming. No, no, no! She wailed. <sighs> Those damn cats! I should have killed all of them! Frank stammered. All of them? What do you mean, all of them? She cried in horror through her tears. Uh, oh, yeah, honey. <laughs> I kill a bunch of those stupid cats of yours. Carol heard the words, but she couldn't comprehend them. Frank was still on the floor holding his bleeding head, not laughing quite as hard now that the pain had really started to set in. It sure felt good to tell her about her precious little bastards. Carol was reeling. She leaned on the kitchen counter to steady herself. Her heart was pounding hard in her chest and she felt dizzy. She thought of all the cats that had run away or found better homes, not knowing why they had left, just that they didn't love her enough to stay. She hadn't been good enough, wasn't a good enough mother to them. That's all she ever wanted, to be a good mother. Carol vomited into the kitchen sink, still holding on to Linda. How many had he killed? 
what happened to them. How could he kill a creature as sweet as a little cat? What kind of monster would do that? Frank had tricked her, made her believe she was unlovable. He pretended to be a good man, but he wasn't a good man. He was a monster. He didn't deserve to live. Carol gently set Linda down on the counter. She grabbed a frying pan from the stove and hit Frank on the head as he was trying to get up. He fell back down with a thud. He was not laughing anymore. He cried out in pain as she hit him again. When the pain came down a third time, he blocked it. He swung and hit her in the jaw with a clenched fist. He had never hit a woman before, but he felt like he was fighting for his life. Carol fell backwards onto the floor, her whole head pounded from the blow. Before she could shake it off, Frank was on top of her, hands on her neck. She tried screaming, but no sound came from her collapsed throat. Frank squeezed and screamed like a madman. He was overcome with rage. He felt the soft skin of her wrinkled neck. Under her skin, the ligaments and tendons were tough. It seemed like everything was happening in slow motion and yet so fast at the same time. She squirmed under him and tried screaming, her eyes as wide as any he had ever seen. Her face was turning purple, and the look of terror she had on her face was that of someone about to die. He wasn't thinking at all at this point. His entire brain was as primal as it got. His heart pounded, sweat and blood rolled off his head and onto her face. She finally stopped struggling and just stared at him with bulging bloodshot eyes. He was still squeezing her neck with all his strength when he realized she wasn't moving anymore. She just looked up at him with vacant dead eyes, her mouth screaming a silent scream no one would ever hear. Frank fell over onto the floor crying. He began sobbing uncontrollably as the realization of what he had done began to sink in. The cats that had scattered during the melee started to come back around. It was, after all, their dinner time. Frank finally managed to get to his knees, his hands filling his bleeding head. Still crying, he looked at his dead wife. Cleo, an orange tabby, was standing on her chest, sniffing her face. The other cats mewled around her, wondering what was going on. They looked at her body on the ground and sniffed at the smell of blood and cat feces in the kitchen. Frank was scared. He didn't know what to do next. Should he call the police, confess to killing his wife? Would they believe it was in self-defense? Was it in self-defense? He could have stopped. He should have stopped. His mind was racing. Why didn't he stop? Blood ran in his eyes as he whimpered. His poor wife, he thought. She didn't deserve this. He would fess up to what he did. It was the only way. He tried composing himself as best he could before he tried standing. Frank felt the weight of the world on his shoulders as he pulled himself into a standing position. The pain in his head paled in comparison to the regret he felt for what he had just done. He would go to jail for murder, and he deserved it. The first thing to do was to call the police, tell them what had happened. Frank started for the phone on the wall when he slipped on the spilled contents of Linda's bowels. 
He came crashing down violently on the hutch again, with even more force than the first time. He heard the loud snap of his neck and then hit the floor. He was face down on the cold linoleum. He slowly opened his eyes and could see only Carol on the floor surrounded by her hungry, cherished cats waiting for her to wake up and feed them. He tried to get up and found that he was unable to move his arms or legs at all. Despite his efforts, he couldn't move any part of his body. Then he noticed he couldn't feel any part of his body. What happened? What was going on? Frank yelled, hoping his body would wake up and start working again. Nothing. He yelled some more. Yelled out of terror because he was helpless, prone, on the floor. The sun was setting outside and the kitchen was getting darker. Cats meowed and crawled up and down Carol's steel body. Frank's voice was raw and hoarse from screaming. The weight of his body made it harder and harder to breathe. He could still see the outline of Carol's body in the dim light. He tried to think of what to do next. He desperately needed help. He faded in and out of consciousness. A dark figure floated above Carol's body. Frank tried to crane his head to get a look at what it was. A flowing black gown covered the head and body so he couldn't tell what he was looking at. It seemed to be looking at Carol just floating over her. A sick black appendage reached down for her. Frank tried screaming to make it stop, but when he opened his mouth, all that came out was black beetles. Hundreds skittered all over the floor. Frank suddenly woke up and realized he was having a nightmare. He woke up to a real nightmare. Unable to move, he lay there in the very dark room. He couldn't feel it, but he was aware that a cat was on his back. Great, that's all he needed. Frank started screaming again. Help! Somebody! Help! He sobbed at how futile his efforts were. He was so stupid. The neighbors lived too far away for them to hear him. How long would he be there? Who would come looking for them? Anyone? No, there was no one that would realize there was a problem. Frank was scared now, really scared. He came unglued, shrieking at the top of his lungs like a wild animal. This startled the cats that surrounded him. When they realized it was just Frank yelling again, they returned to grooming themselves. All he could do was look at them sitting on and around her. It looked like they were guarding her body. Some of them stared back at him, meowing. Several sat next to their empty food bowls. Good, he thought to himself. No dinner for you tonight, you rotten animals. Frank always insisted that the cats ate after they did. They shouldn't come first all the time. Get off of me, he yelled at the black cat sitting on him. He wasn't even sure of any of their names. It didn't matter anyway, not to him, especially now. The black cat just sat there, unmoved by his pleas. Frank believed in God, but wasn't much for talking to him. 
Now seemed like a good time to start. God, if you can hear me, I could really use some help about now. I know I messed up, but if you could, help me please. He whimpered and prayed until he fell asleep. Frank awoke to the sounds of meowing. Hungry cats wandered around the kitchen. They swatted and hissed at each other. Oh, yeah. You guys didn't eat last night, did you? Frank growled at them. His mouth was dry. His eyes were crusted over and swollen from crying. Once the cats realized he was awake, they went pleading to him. Good. I hope you starve. His raw voice cracked. He tried looking around. He strained his eyes, not able to move his head. The kitchen window faced the street. Sunlight was just starting to fill the kitchen through the small window. Maybe the mailman would hear his cries for help when he stopped by later. Wait, what day was it? Damn, it was Sunday. No mailman today. Frank felt a blanket of dread fall on him. He hadn't had any liquids for a long time, and he knew the clock was ticking for him. How long could he last? Not too long without water. Maybe God would answer his prayers and send the neighbor over today. Carol always said God could do anything. Of course, that was long before he murdered her in cold blood, so maybe God wasn't smiling on Frank today. Frank told himself to stay positive. That's when the unthinkable happened. The black cat jumped off of Frank and onto Carol's dead body. He sniffed at her chest and then walked up to her face and sniffed again. Frank watched as the cat tried to assess the situation. The cat then licked her face. Other cats were closing in to see what this cat was up to. The black cat then nibbled on her chin. He had seen these cats do that sometimes. She said it was a sign of affection towards humans. Frank thought this cat must be missing her. Then, all of a sudden, the cat opened its mouth and chomped down on her lower lip. The cat bit hard and pulled on her stiff lip. <laughs> no! yelled Frank. The black cat ignored him and kept pulling on her flesh. Another cat put its front legs on Carol's shoulders to get a better look at what was happening. Then others came and watched in curiosity. Stop! Get off her! Frank was horrified. So many cats were on and around her that he couldn't even see her face anymore. Two cats started fighting like they did over their food. The black cat was pulling harder until it fell back. It turned and Frank could see it had a piece of Carol's lip in his mouth. Frank screamed again, physically sickened by what he was seeing. The cats were eating her. The black cat ran off with its prize while the other cats were biting and pulling on her face. More fights broke out as they tried to get a piece of her. Frank cried. <laughs> you bastards! Get off her! 
but they didn't. They were hungry, and for the rest of the day, they helped themselves to the last meal Carol would ever give them. Frank shrieked in mental anguish, screaming and trying to thrash his body. He couldn't move a muscle. All he could do was watch and listen to his wife being devoured by those rotten cats. I hope you enjoyed The Cat Lady, as written by Darcy Turnbow and voiced by Drew Blood and Melissa Exelberth. Darcy Turnbow lives in Oregon with her husband, two kids, and several spoiled pets. Join us every Friday evening to join Drew Blood, who hosts the amazing Drew Blood's Dark Tales podcast. You won't regret it. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Horror Story is a podcast about strange and mysterious true horrors. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, host and producer of Horror Story. In the show, I have an episode called There's a Stranger in Your Walls, and it's about a woman that moved out of her home because she thought it was being haunted. But the truth happen to be even scarier than the ghosts. Other stories dive deep into the supernatural, like the one of the most infamous cases of real ghosts, called The Haunting in San Pedro. But if you're into mysteries, learn about the pilot who disappeared in the sky. All of these and more are available on Horror Story right now, with more episodes coming out every single week. You can search for the podcast by typing in Horror Story on your podcast app right now. The show is the one with the yellow letters. I'll see you over there on Horror Story. Our second tale of the evening comes to us from author Kitty Olson and is performed by Nick Goroff. This apostolary-esque tale gives us a front row seat into the macabre with madness, medicine, and murder. Now, without further ado... I present to you, A Gentleman Seeking the Perfect Wife. I found this old journal tucked away in the back of my attic, in a box full of old newspapers, all about the same story. A wealthy, respected doctor had butchered his wife. He'd been declared mad and locked away in an asylum, all the while. 
He claimed his wife was already dead when they'd been married. The name of the doctor is written in the front of the journal. So I suppose it's his. A dreary day, both inside and outside. With my lack of patience, I have little to do but write in this old book. Not that much has changed since the last entry. Save for that one romance I then briefly entertained is now long over. Charlotte was a beautiful woman, surely, but she did not meet my personal standards for a wife. She was incredibly dull and with poor manners. Mother says my standards are so high I'll never get married at this rate. She would say that, though, my father had settled for her, a grocer's daughter, with a harpy screech of a laugh that had no proper breeding. In this regard, I'm thankful I was sent to live with my father's brother when I was a child, so I was properly educated. I do want to marry, but my wife must be of good breeding, with pleasant manners, and worthy of my name. I won't accept anything less, and if that means I must remain a bachelor, then a bachelor I will remain. I must end this entry here. I have a party to go to tonight, hosted by my good friend Kirk Archer. Let it end my sour mood and moping over things out of my control. My luck has changed. The sun shines golden through my morning window, signifying this wonderful event. I have met a woman, and she is everything I have wanted. The party was joyful, and at least pulled me out of my brooding enough to socialize with my fellow man. Kirk tapped my shoulder about halfway through the night and whispered that his wife wanted to introduce me to someone. I have nothing against Abyss. She's a woman worthy of Kirk, even if she's prone to that womanly sin of gossip. She had been introducing me to several of her friends in the past, though, and none had been particularly suited to me, so my expectations were low when Kirk went to go fetch her. The woman that passed through the door behind Avis put out any negative thought in my mind. Words cannot describe her elegant beauty. A galata sprung from mythology and into my life. Skin like white marble, raven hair drawn into a silver comb and eyes, eyes so deep and dark, they make the night sky appear shallow. I barely heard Abbas introduce her, only making out a name, Delilah, beautiful, perfect Delilah. I approached her and could barely make my own introduction, my mouth dry as if I'd stuffed it full of straw. Delilah smiled at me, at me. I never felt so important. It's a pleasure to meet you, Dr. Egerton. She spoke so well, not too loudly, but clear as a bell. I feel like a new man today. I spent most of the night talking with Delilah, learning about her, telling her about myself. She was the daughter of a relative of Avis's, and had only come to the city after finishing her schooling. She was in perfect form, spoke of arts, not of politics. 
enjoyed a glass of sherry, but not another. And when we parted, I asked if we could see each other again, and she accepted. I want to see her every day of my life. I cannot close my eyes without seeing Delilah in my mind. God has heard my want and has answered my prayers. A woman of proper breeding, with good manners and so indescribably beautiful. I will pursue this relationship like a hound chases a fox without relent. Delilah. Oh, Delilah. I will make you my wife. I have been courting Delilah. Kirk has been more than willing to chaperone us, and it was Delilah who politely insisted on his presence. A proper woman, through and through. We take walks through the park, where I tell her about my work, and how my week is gone, and she listens, never interrupting, only adding amusing conversational points when I invite them. I have learned more about her as well. Sadly, her mother and father passed away in a dreadful accident. But she was lucky to live with an aunt, who made sure she was properly raised. Now a grown woman, she has come into her parents' fortune, and said she needs to find a good husband, so that her family's money isn't squandered. I am in no need of her wealth, and I made mention of this. The light in those beautiful eyes of hers. I believe she is interested in me as well. Alas, I will not be seeing her this week. Kirk sent me a letter telling me that Delilah had fallen ill and would spend the week in bed. I offered to come look her over, but he said it wasn't all that serious. She just needed bed rest. I will miss her, but the anticipation will make seeing her again all the better. I have seen Delilah again. She was tired, but well enough to enjoy our walk. She explained her constitution was weak from time to time, but she always got better after some quiet rest. I offered to introduce her to another doctor, as our relationship would make it inappropriate for me to see her medically. She gracefully declined. She'd been to all the doctor's home. There was nothing new to be added to her diagnosis. Just rest and quiet, not even seeing Avis and Kirk. At least it appears it's nothing serious. She looks as lovely as ever, and was as charming as ever. I dare get my hopes up. I may have found my Mrs. Egerton. I forgot about this old journal again. Busy few months at work and with Delilah, no time to write my thoughts. But Delilah has taken ill again, and all I can do now is wait to see her again. It started last night during our regular walk. I've gotten so easily comfortable around her that I almost wish to hold her hand, but I do not. I am a gentleman, and Delilah is a lady, and even if Kirk were not present, I would never be so daring. But fate seemed to conspire with me, and we'd taken a path we usually did not. It was not us often traveled. It was more difficult for a woman to walk. As a gentleman, I offered her my hand, which she so gratefully accepted. Her sleeve had shifted in the movement, though, and I noticed it first. A small sore 
no bigger than the tip of my thumb, distorting otherwise perfect skin on her wrist. I'd initially thought it was a beetle, or she'd smudged ink there while she'd been writing letters. I went to wipe it away, and I felt the break in her skin, the wetness of blood. Delilah became stiff and jerked her hand away, realizing at once what I'd touched. She frantically apologized, saying she'd cut her wrist while in the garden earlier that day and hadn't realized it had gotten so poorly. I offered her my handkerchief, which she gratefully wrapped around the injury, but she requested I escort her home. I imagine it was because she had been so flustered. When I went to see her this afternoon, I was declined at the door again by Kirk and told about Delilah's poor health. I was disappointed, but instead spent my time with Kirk, catching up about our daily life. This determines me, though. I will ask Delilah to marry me. I cannot imagine life without her, and being unable to comfort her in this time is torture. She is the perfect woman for me. I will not let her get away. Delilah and I are officially engaged. I could not be a happier man. I wish I could meet her mother and father as is proper, but at least she could meet my parents tonight. I was nervous, what man wouldn't be, but my fears were for naught. Delilah is perfect, and everyone who meets her knows this. Even my mother warmed up to her quickly enough after she spent some time alone in the parlor with Delilah. Although she'd been cold up to Delilah till then, after they were acting like old friends, like a mother and a daughter. I'm curious as to what their conversations could have been, but I'll keep such thoughts to myself. All that matters is that I will be a married man in six months. Perhaps it's a bit quick of an engagement, but I cannot make myself wait any longer. I will have the life I've always wanted, with the perfect wife. I've been so busy planning the wedding that I've neglected this. But I need to get my feelings out somewhere. Tomorrow is the day. I couldn't have been more elated. But tonight I was visited by Kirk, and my good mood turned bitter with what he told me. First, let me state he was clearly drunk, swaying and reeking of gin. The look in his eyes was one that was haunted, though, as if he'd seen indescribable horror. He begged to speak with me, alone, his words so slurred I could scarcely understand him. Afraid for his safety, I led him into my home. In the parlor, Kirk poured himself another drink. He usually doesn't take such liberties, but clearly whatever was on his mind had him so distressed that proper manners were beyond him. After taking a drink, he faced me. You cannot marry Delilah. Call off the wedding tonight. At this moment, do not delay. I was both so angry and heartbroken at this declaration. I demanded to know why, of course, why I couldn't marry the woman of my dreams. What he said next made me realize that my dearest and lifelong friend had gone completely stark raving mad. He claimed my fiancé 
had been dead ever since we fell in love. I laughed at such a ridiculous claim. I'd held her hand, felt the warmth of her fingers, pulse on her wrist. Her cheeks flushed red when she was excited. She was not dead, but he insisted. This week she had taken ill again, likely due to all the stress of becoming a bride. Kirk had not intended on becoming a bother, but he'd needed Avis's input on some task and knew she was taking care of Delilah, so surely he could go in for just a moment. He described a scene of filth, of decaying flesh hanging off of Delilah's limbs, of Avis feeding her as her fingers were oozing too much pus to grip the spoon. It was so awful to hear, I nearly became sick. But the story is so ridiculous, in the same breath. I am an expert in modern medicine, one of the best doctors in this city. What he described was just... impossible. I sent for Avis and consoled my friend to the best of my ability while she came with some other doctors. He begged not to be committed, that he wasn't insane, but it is the only answer to what he's saying. I am sorrowful that he will miss the wedding. So was Avis, and she told me Delilah sends her best. Of course, I told Avis the mad story her husband said and Avis just shook her head. She said Kirk hadn't even come near Delilah's bedroom, so could he had seen what he had described? I only hope that Kirk recovers soon and we can move past this. Our wedding was perfect. A year to the date of our first wonderful meeting, Delilah in a dress of pure white, crying with joy as we were joined in marriage. I admit, a tear was in my eye as well, but I kept my composure. I wish that Kirk was there. But Avis came in his stead, gifting us a lovely new tablecloth, and once again apologizing for the scene that happened the night before. Thankfully, Delilah was oblivious to it all. My wife sleeps next to me now. Beautiful, heavenly in the lamplight. No signs of the delusion that Kirk told me of. Not that I ever gave it a second thought, of course. What he described was preposterous. Insane. I'll never give it a second thought. Something terrible has happened today. My day was already rather poorly. My dear and heaven-gifted Delilah is ill and is refusing to let me into her bedroom. She demanded I send for Avis, as she doesn't want me to see her in this condition. Nothing I could do could convince her, so I simply headed to the hospital to begin my workday. It was chaotic the moment I arrived. A patient had arrived and expired the night previous. Nothing shocking about that. What was shocking was when the family came to retrieve the body, and there was a piece missing. Someone had taken a cut of the corpse's thigh and sliced open the stomach. From what my quick examination revealed was a missing chunk of liver. 
The father demanded to know who had violated his daughter's body, and I had no answer. I'd assume body thieves, but they wouldn't have just taken two pieces of flesh. At the very least, they would have run off with the head or torso. I can only assume this was the actions of a perverse madman, an insane fetishist. The family will receive quite the sum and recompense for what had been done. The mood at the hospital was heavy, and the mood in my home is no better. I don't know what's worse, having to deal with Avis while she's chatting away at me while cooking at the stove, or when she's with Delilah and I am alone in a home that should not feel so empty as it does. I had a nightmare. One so awful I'd think it real if I didn't know it was impossible. Even now, my fingers tremble as I write on these journal pages. The images burned into my mind like a brand. I wish to forget them, but all I can do is put them in this book. It was night. I could not bear to be apart from my sweet Delilah any further. I got up in the night and headed for her room, just to kiss goodnight. A check to see how poorly she was. I am a doctor, an expert in my field. Surely I should be able to take care of my beautiful wife. I knew something was wrong the moment I opened the door. The scent of flowers and perfume only partially masked the bittersweet rot that hung heavy on the air. I was nearly overcome by it, but I pressed deeper into the room, afraid my dear had a wound that had putrefied. She laid on the bed, still as a corpse, as that was what she'd become. My lovely Delilah was sprawled across the bed, her face still beautiful and pale, but from the neck down. Oh, it was terrible. Just terrible. Bloated, rotting, with maggots crawling out of pus-filled pustules and flies buzzing about her body. I was overcome with disgust and grief when she opened her death-glazed eyes and flicked her gaze towards me. That is the last thing I remember. I woke up this morning in cold sweats and an aching head. I'd somehow rolled out of bed and hit myself in the back of the skull. It still hurts, but for once Avis is being helpful. She isn't even talking too much as she brings me tea. I did go to Delilah's door, and although my nose tried to trick me into thinking there was rot, Delilah called out to me and reassured me of her health. She was already starting to feel better. In days, she'd be back in my arms. I told her I loved her again and again, how beautiful I thought she was. None of which I explained as to why. Oh, my poor aching head. I'm going to lie down. Rest and relaxation for me too, as well as my darling Delilah. Once again, Delilah is in my arms, as healthy and whole as I last remember her. My dream came and haunted me again and again, more twisted and macabre each time I closed my eyes. A half-dead Delilah coming to me in the night. Flesh slowing off her body with each step, her lips curled in a repugnant grin. Nothing like my real Delilah. 
I finally told her of my dreams, and she was wonderful, of course, soothing me about such mad nightmares, reassuring me that she was just fine, more than fine. She loves me so much, and I love her. Now that we are reunited, my mind should not be so cruel to me. At least, I hope. What a wonderful day. Delilah is with child. Perhaps that is why she took ill at the beginning of this month, but it does not matter. I could not be happier. She will soon have my child. I beg for a son to carry my family's name, but even a girl will be welcome. She will no doubt be as beautiful and charming as her mother. Delilah is also filled with delight. She is already making lists of names, decorating the nursery. Oh, has my house been blessed. I hope this will be the first of many children. I want a house filled with laughter and little ones. A nanny will have to be hired, especially with Delilah's health troubling her from time to time. I will hire the best one I can. Our family will be perfect. I am afraid Kirk's delusional state has come to bother me once again, as well as Kirk himself. He is home from the hospital, now reduced to a pitiful state. Hair falling out, unable to lift himself from his chair, this empty look in his eyes. The man I once considered a friend seems to be dead, replaced by a breathing corpse. I did go to see him. Avis was reluctant to let me in, but she relented after I said I'd only stay for a short time. His gaze remained blank while Avis cleaned uh, about the room, and I told him all the things he'd missed, how things were going at the hospital, how we were expecting our first child. He did nothing except stare until Avis left the room. Then he snapped back to life bony hands gripping the arms of his chair. Do yourself a favor, old friend. Kill that woman before that malignant baby even draws breath, he snarled. The anger, the true rage with which he said that. For the first time, I was actually truly afraid of Kirk. I composed myself, as a gentleman does, and told him I would do nothing of the sort. What he experienced was madness, as my wife was healthy as she could be, save for the days she took to seclusion for her illness. Kirk glared at me for several silent seconds, the hair on my neck standing straight, as I feared he would lurch up and attack me. Finally, he just sighed and flopped back in his chair as if feeling the anger alone was an exhausting endeavor. If you need proof, wait for Delilah to take ill again. Go into her room. Do not accept her excuses or pleading to stay out. You will see. You will see, and you will understand. Before I could question him further, Avis came into the room and insisted I leave so that her husband could rest. 
nagging woman. Perhaps that's what drove him to madness, having such a demanding, frightful wife, when such madness has him lashing out at my perfect Delilah. But these thoughts now won't leave my head. I can't stop thinking about it. If for even a moment I lose focus, my mind goes to my wife's regular seclusion. I fear I may go mad myself at this rate. And as if fate's conspired, my wife is taken to her room again due to her illness. Avis is nothing her back to health. But tonight I will go. I will finally put to rest these thoughts of a madman that have infected me with doubt of my beloved Delilah. I finally found my perfect wife. I won't lose her. I have been tricked. All this time, I believed Delilah. I lost faith in my dearest friend because of her. I had wool pulled over my eyes, and now I pay for it. I did go to Delilah's room after dark. At most, I expected to see her asleep, as peaceful as could be, a hand draped over her slowly growing belly. I would hate myself for doubting her. I would kiss her on the head and go back to my own room, pray that she would forgive me. Instead, I entered the room to see I was peeling a strip of putrid flesh off of Delilah's bare back. The wet tear barely registered in my mind because all I could do was process the smell. The bittersweet decay, cloying, overwhelming every other sense and making the room tilt as I could scarcely draw breath. Both Avis and Delilah turned towards me. Delilah's face, white as snow, still perfect and whole compared to the sickly sight the rest of her had become. She had yet to strip the skin from her belly, but the rest of it was slow and free, muscle overcome by tumors leaking pus and blackened blood. She looked like a dead woman. I didn't know that Avis could move that fast, or hit so hard. I believe she'd taken a candlestick to bash me over the head, but I didn't see for sure. I was too focused on this macabre being my wife had become. By the time I saw her coming for me, I couldn't defend myself from her heavy blows. I came in and out of consciousness as I was dragged back to my room, and as I laid on the floor, in shock, from both the sight I'd been subjected to and being hit over the head, I heard Avis barricading my bedroom door. By the time I came back to myself, I'd been trapped in my room. I cannot make the door budge. From what I hear downstairs, Avis is telling any callers that I have become ill and cannot be disturbed. I tried to pound on the floor, alert them that I was trapped, but my house swallowed any sounds of distress. All I have is my journal, and my thoughts. The facade so carefully set before me, destroyed. My marriage has been a lie. I have married a dead woman. Avis is a cunning thing, and far stronger than I'd ever assumed the fluttery woman. I've now had chains attached to my legs, 
I can go about my room, but I am truly a prisoner. I am brought food. I am given the daily newspaper, but I cannot go for help. Even if I could get the door open, after Rivers beat me unconscious again, she'd had a proper lock put on the door. Delilah came to visit me after the chains were put into place. Her shame couldn't have been more evident now that the truth was out there between us. That, and she hadn't healed yet. Not totally. Pink, new skin starting to form. We're outnumbered by the oozing sores. She resembled a victim of the plague, except for her face. Her perfect, beautiful face was untouched by this curse. She told me a story about what she was. Many generations ago, a man fell in love with a woman both alive and dead. In a state of decay and life, all at the same time. The children they had were beautiful. But when the girls became women, every few months, they would undergo the shedding. They'd rot like a corpse, and then they'd come back to life, as beautiful as ever. Avis was not of the bloodline. It came from Delilah's father, which is what she thinks is odd. As far as she was aware, this woman that shed could not have children, yet she was pregnant. Even in her own family, she was an anomaly. But she assured me that she loved me, and that she was so happy to be my wife. That she was sorry she kept this secret, but how could she tell me? How could she tell me indeed? I turned away from her. I am still a gentleman, and what I wanted to tell her, what I wanted to scream at her, were things a gentleman did not say. So she left, weeping. What else did she expect? I cannot trust her again. I loved her. I loved her more than life itself, and now all I see is a bloated corpse. A vile abomination against God and man. Only a love so strong could turn into a hate so poisonous now inside me. I will kill Delilah. If I am freed from these chains. Of this, I have no doubt. But will she remain dead? Would it even be murder if she'd been dead all along? These walls close in on me a little more each day. I wish to bite and claw my way through them, dig like a hound going for a badger. Find the badger tear her throat out with my teeth, kiss her goodnight, tell her how much I loved her. Ava says I'm being dramatic. When I cry out in the night, she comes into the room and gags me so I will be silent. She doesn't understand. She doesn't care. I hate her. She hates me. I spit in her face when she brings me dinner and she compares me to Kirk. Weak of mind and spirit. A pathetic man who just wanted a pretty wife that performed her role to the letter as he wrote it. I cannot stand being in here. I want to be free. I want to go out. 
or to scream in the streets of the night that I had been a widower even before we exchanged the vows, or to crawl through the cracks in the floor, find myself on the wedding day, and when they ask for objections, I will stand in the back and scream them. I would scream that she is dead. She cannot be married to a gentleman. Kirk, my good friend, I am so sorry I thought you were mad. Because truth, it turns out, is madder than anything the mind could ever twist together. I heard Delilah scream. I screamed back. The sounds of agony can only be one thing. I am to be a father. Forgive the smears of blood on this page. I feel at peace. My life is over, no doubt. I will be locked in a prison or madhouse for what I have done. For what I have seen. But I have done what I can to make this travesty right. Delilah was moaning and screaming through the night. Cacophony of sound causing me to rip my hair out as all I could do was sit there and listen. Then Avis barged into the room. Without a word, she undid my chains and dragged me from my room. I remember her telling me that there was a problem, that Delilah could push no longer and my medical expertise would be needed. If I had the strength, I would have asked. Why not call for the midwife? But once we were in the bedroom, it became clear that Delilah's secret would be no more if there had been another person called in. Delilah had pushed so hard she'd torn, and she rotted like the worm-fested apple she secretly was. She was sobbing, saying the shedding had never hurt before, but now her baby... Our baby was trapped. She was physically unable to push now. The muscles were just not working. I asked for a knife and it was given. I was still a doctor and I cut my wife's belly open. I pushed aside putrefying organs and tumor-infested flesh to get to her womb. Blood poured under the bed like water, but I did not focus on that. I dug my fingers through her rotten flesh, rending her open with little care. She was already dead. She was already dead. It didn't matter. I almost expected to find a stillbirth inside of her. After all, she said women of her bloodline didn't give birth. But in all this vile putrefaction, once the final cut was made, there it was, a perfectly healthy baby, pulled into the light, already beautiful, perfect, just like Delilah. It's a girl! Avis took the baby from me, and it howled, its pitiful little lungs filling with air as it was wiped clean. A girl... A carrier of that horrible bloodline. A terrible little girl. 
Davis made the mistake not taking the knife from me as soon as the daughter was born. I plunged it into Delilah's chest. Delilah's eyes went wide, and she made a quiet sound, and that was all. She no longer had it in her to scream. I was the one screaming. I screamed how I hated her, how I loved her, how she'd become my world and then took it away all the while. And I've acted on its own in my hand, stabbing into her again and again. I wanted to cut it all out. All the rot, all the filth, just cut it out of her. By the time the knife slid out of my hand so slicked with blood I could no longer hold it, Delilah was gone. Not dead. She'd always been dead, but gone. There's little left but splattered viscera and broken bones. Her terribleness is strewn across the room. Only her face is left whole. Eyes closed in peaceful surrender. I did pick up the knife and turn to where I'd last noticed Avis, but she was gone. So, so is Delilah's daughter. It was then my mind finally translated the final weak sound Delilah had made before she'd left. Avis had once again barricaded the door, but I would not attempt to escape my fate anyway. I hear the men of the law down the hall now. They will be coming in here shortly enough. I hope they don't slip on the blood. As my final words before I am taken, I am not guilty of anything. My wife was already dead. I hope you enjoyed A Gentleman Seeking the Perfect Wife, as written by Kitty Olson and performed by Nick Goroff. Kitty, the odd cat lady Olson, is a young writer currently living in Illinois, but her heart always remains in Michigan. She's been writing since she was young and over the past couple of years has developed a knack for writing horror. Voice actor and 2016 Evil Idol champion Nick Goroff's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary podcast. You can also join Nick on his YouTube channel, Wizard of Cause. On that note, be sure to check out the other shows we offer on our network. We have Scary Stories Told in the Dark with Otis Shirey airing Sundays, Fear from the Heartland, Featuring horror stories brought to you from the heartland, airing Wednesdays. Eric Peabody's Horror Hill, a podcast dedicated to some of our deeper and darker tales. We hope you check him out. Drew Blood's Dark Tales airs Fridays, featuring some southern, down-home horror. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go... 
I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. <laughs> Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.